it's easier for them to go with John. They'll get a message with him. All right, we're looking at Acts chapter 13 today. Um, so you can turn there in your Bibles. If you're using the Bibles here at the church, this will be page 921, Acts chapter 13. We'll begin at verse 13. We've looked already at the first 13, or the first 12 verses of this chapter. And today we'll look at verses 13 through 43, the entirety of Paul's sermon. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. It'll also be projected, but it's a longer text, so you might want it in front of you. All right, well, let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us today. Dear Lord, we need you. We want to hear from you. Please, O oh Lord, focus our minds. Guide us into your truth. Give me wisdom and clarity as I speak, Lord. May I be your servant. And Lord, grow us all as we desire, O oh Lord, to know you more, to see our Savior, to get a glimpse of your glory, and to be refreshed, to be exhorted, to be encouraged. We thank you for your word and how it encourages us. We pray that by your Spirit, we would listen, we would hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. God's Word. So we are uh, currently working through what is referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. I've got a map of this journey. Sarah's going to put it up for us on the wall. Now, is, we're going to zoom in here, but just to give you guys, get your bearings right, we've got way down at the bottom of this where there's a 2, a 5, and a 10, those three numbers, that's Jerusalem. And then all the way up towards the top where there's the 4 and the 9, that's Antioch where they are sent out on this first missionary journey. And if you follow the blue arrow, there's Cyprus, and then they'll head up into what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Sarah, if you can show me the next slide, and hopefully you'll be able to see this one a little bit clearer. So we have Antioch over there, the four and the nine, Cyprus. There were two cities that they stopped at. We saw that over the last two weeks. And then after that in our text today, they sail 
to this little uh, bay right here. And the first town there is Atalia. I'm not sure if you guys can read that or not. Uh, I'm a little closer than you, but there's Atalia, modern-day Antalya, where uh, Travis and Bryson and I were just this past fall. And then right next to that is a town called Perga, which we just read about. They head from Antalya to Perga, and then following that blue arrow up through the mountains, and the map shows you a little bit of the terrain there. This would have been a hefty hike um, up into the mountains to Pisidian Antioch, another Antioch. There's a lot of Antiochs because of somebody famous that all these Antiochs got named after. So Pisidian Antioch, um, where we come to in our text today, they'll head to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe um, in the future, and then they'll come all the way back to report to the church in Antioch. But that is his first missionary journey. Sarah, if you can go to the next slide now. Uh, this is a picture that I took while we were in Antalya. Uh, Travis and Bryson and I stood here, and this is the harbor where they are thought to have landed, uh, Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. And uh, right that, that spit of land out there, there's supposedly a uh, Roman, an old, the remains of an old Roman dock. And, you know, it's thought maybe that's where they got off and first got on land there. And then, um, Sarah, if you can show the next picture, here's the three of us in the city of Perga. I just have to, I, mean, I know that in the text they don't spend a lot of time in Perga, but since we have a picture in Perga, I had to show you this picture. And uh, this, you know, the remains you see around us are thought to be what was there when, when Saul and Barnabas walked through this town. Um, the road that is directly behind us is the one that leads out of the city towards Pisidian Antioch. So we know for certain that where we are standing, Paul and Barnabas walked down that path. Um, and, you know, we walk through, you can walk through the old gates, and then there's a path that leads up into the mountains so you can see what kind of a journey it would have been. It was a very hot day, Travis. I think you remember that, Bryson. It was a pretty hot day. Um, so it would have been a hefty hike. It's at this point also, perhaps, maybe at this very crossroads that John Mark leaves. We saw that in the text in verse 13. So, um, you know, we don't know the reasons exactly why he leaves, but perhaps, uh, perhaps they had an argument right there where we're standing. We don't know. Um, so that's Perga. Sarah, you can take away that picture now. So they, they continue on into the mountains, and then notice, right, by the way, if you're looking at the text, that, that we've changed. Some, something happened while they were on Cyprus, because we've gone from uh, Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas, right? So the name has changed, Saul's name has changed, and now he's in the lead spot. So there's things going on here. We don't, we don't even know about exactly how this happened. Um, they get to Pisidian Antioch, uh, this town in the mountains. They go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. This, of course, was their practice when they would go to new towns to share the gospel. They would go first to the synagogue. And um, the way synagogues worked at that time, there's, a, there's first a reading from the law, first five books of the Old Testament, and then there'd be a reading from the prophets, probably some prayer. And then the ruler of the synagogue, the elder who had been elected for that year, would ask someone to talk about those readings and apply them to the congregation. And so in this case, you know, Paul and Barnabas, maybe they were recognized as rabbis or maybe someone there already knew them. Uh, and so they're asked, hey, would you give us a word of encouragement? 
would you give us a word of encouragement? And I think it's worth reminding ourselves right here, right from the beginning, the message of God's word is at its core a word of encouragement. The message God's people have, it's an encouraging one. What we have to say is encouraging. But what happens, right? We live in a discouraging world, and that's, that's putting it lightly. Uh, there are discouraging attacks coming at us and from within us constantly, all the time. We've got the oppression of our own sinful desires. We've got unkind, ungracious people. We've got tragedies and accidents, and we've got cloudy days that discourage us. Let's say I had placed a fill-in-the-blank card beneath each of your seats. I didn't, so don't check, but let's say I had, right? And in your minds, you take up that card right now, and you just write what discouraged you this week. I'm sure we all have something we could write on that card, whether it's something we've been dealing with for a while or something that happened this week. We get discouraged, and we need to be encouraged. And so there's a sense in which when we gather with fellow believers, there should always be this voice. If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This comes, of course, through our interactions with each other, right? The touch of a hand, a smile, attention given, questions asked. And, of course, like it does here in our text, it comes through our worship service, through prayer, through song, and, of course, most importantly, through the, the reading and the preaching of God's Word. So this morning, be encouraged by this apostolic sermon that Paul preaches. That's what I want. I want you to be encouraged here. Um, this sermon falls easily into three sections. Paul appears to approve of the three-point sermon. Each section here is marked out by an address. Uh, so, you know, midway through verse 16, he starts his sermon, and he says, uh, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Right? And then he begins to talk about, this is sort of the historical phase of his sermon, that first section, where he's really focusing on God's grace to his people in the past. And then in verse 26, <clears throat> he readdresses uh, his audience, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. So again, he's starting the second Stage, and he shares the core of his encouraging message that God saves through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, um, finally then, in, in verse 38, again, he resets himself. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. And he closes by calling them to accept God's offer of freedom. So, I'll follow Paul's structure with my own sermon this morning to encourage us. Uh, beginning with a reminder of God's gracious acts. God's gracious acts. Some of you may recall the character Puddle Glum from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. Uh, if you haven't read that book, don't worry. Believe me, there are people in your life, like Puddle Glum, 
So you will be able to relate to this. Pondo Glum is a character who is entirely consistent about being negative, about everything and anything that happens. Um, so here's just a quick sampling of the first comments he makes when the main characters meet him. He says, Good morning, guests, though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain or it might be snow or fog or thunder. You didn't get any sleep, I dare say. I'm trying to catch a few eels to make an eel stew for our dinner, though I shouldn't wonder if I didn't get any. And you won't like them much if I do. While I am catching them, if you two could try to light the fire, no harm trying. Uh, the woods behind the wigwam, it may be wet. You could light it inside the wigwam, and then we'd all get the smoke in our eyes. Or you could light it outside, and then the rain would come and put it out. Here's my tinderbox. You wouldn't know how to use it, I expect. It's just the first taste of puddle glum. That's the first taste, and this goes throughout the book. Maybe some of you can relate to him a little bit. Uh, you, you heap up all the discouragements and the potential difficulties of the world in your mind. So even if you're not in a hole, you put yourself in a hole by building, piling negative things around you. We, we do this. We need perspective in these moments, and Paul offers us some by reminding us of God's gracious acts. Notice the focus of the verbs in this first section. Focus is all on God's action. Verb after verb after verb. You could just go through. You could underline. You'd see this. Verse 17, he chose our fathers. He made the people great. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with them in the wilderness. He destroyed their enemies. He gave them their land. He gave them judges. He gave them a king. He removed that king because it was bad. In parentheses, he didn't say that, but because that king was bad, he removed him. And he raised up David from whom he brought Israel a savior, just like he promised. Now, you guys know the history of Israel enough to know that there's some discouraging things that happened throughout those years as well, right? But Paul makes an intentional choice to focus on God's acts of grace in those years. Uh, this is a choice we need to reflect in our own lives as well. And maybe you need to ask yourself, do I spend time focusing on God's grace to me in the past? Or do I get caught marinating in all that is pessimistic? Just like God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel, he chose us. And that is an act of pure grace on his part, by which I mean no one has ever deserved for God to choose them. God's choice of you is 100% an unearned gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We need to be continually humbled and brought low by this truth so that we understand that our being raised up and exalted as God's children, that's a pure act of love toward us on God's part, which when we are tempted 
to be discouraged by our status or our performance in any way, uh, by, by the rejection of other people, by, by poverty in, in our gifts, in our, in our finances, to be reminded that God chose us despite all, irregardless of all those things. That is a deeply encouraging truth. And not only that, uh, but he made his people great during their stay in Egypt. He grew them from one household to perhaps two million people by the time of their departure. And, and God continues to work in the lives of his people to bless them, to grow them, to lead them out of slavery. He promises in Philippians 1.6 to complete the good work he began in them when he chose them. And, and of course, the, the image of slavery, right, that becomes one of the, the Bible's most rich images for our relationship to sin and, and the idols that we create. God breaks the shackles of sin and idolatry. He leads us away from them with an uplifted arm, just like he led his people out of slavery in Egypt. We see more. We see more grace of God here, right? Because verse 18, he puts up with his people. And maybe some of you are still doing the whole read through the Bible in one year thing. And so you just read through Exodus and Numbers. Um, so you know how annoying and obnoxious these people are. And, and God does discipline them, but, but as sons and daughters, not enemies. Listen to this beautiful image of God's grace towards obnoxious people. This is Deuteronomy 1.31. In the wilderness, the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. That's a beautiful image of generous, gracious love for very annoying people. Yet, do you know how the next verse goes? Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe. God's people are doubters, complainers, grumblers, liars, and yet, Paul reminds us here, God puts up with them. His gracious acts are repeated to every generation of his people, to them and to us. And we could keep working through these verbs that we looked at in this section, right? He delivers us from our enemies, from the lies of the devil, the world, the flesh. He gives us a promised land, a new heavens, a new earth. But we want to get to the promised king, the son of David, who'd be so glorious that even John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, says, I am not worthy to touch his sandal. This king, this Messiah, this Savior is the radiating center of all the encouragement you need so desperately in this life. He's the foundation of all hope in this life. Without him, you have only yourself and what you can make of yourself with your own efforts. And you will find at the end of your life that even you don't belong to you. All you are 
is a gift to be used for your maker's glory, or if it be the case, to rebel against your maker. Now this king, Jesus, he comes to us through suffering and through exaltation. And so we turn to my second point here, God's salvation message. Paul begins this second part of his sermon in verse 26. Brothers, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now, if you or I were sharing uh, the, the message of salvation with our neighbor, we, we might not share it the way Paul does here. I mean, right, he talks in verse 27 about these utterances of the prophets that were fulfilled in the condemnation of Jesus. In verse 32, he talks about the promise of God to our fathers that he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Then he's got these three quotes from various places in the Old Testament. They're not immediately obvious, right? And then he goes back to David in verse 36. It's all a bit hard to follow, isn't it? And what we need to see here is that Paul's context is such an important part of how he shares his message, right? This is not how he'll share the gospel in Athens. So if we want to grasp the power of this message, we've got to try to understand his context, who he's speaking to. What do they believe? What do they know? What's going through their heads constantly? What have they sung since they were children? This is always going to be true if we want the words of Scripture to really smack us in the face and, and cut deep into our minds and hearts. We need to grasp the context, which takes a little work. Some people don't do it, and then they misunderstand Scripture. So what do we know about these people? Well, right from the get-go, this is a very Jewish audience. Uh, yes, there are God-fearers mentioned here, verses 16, 26, as well as these devout converts to Judaism in verse 43. Um, but overwhelmingly, guys, this is a Jewish synagogue context. So these people, they live and breathe the history of, of Israel and the words of the Old Testament. Maybe... Maybe you stumbled across a family um, that has maybe like one movie or like a comic strip or maybe a television show that is sort of serves as their family code, right? Uh, Jana's family has a couple of these. I've watched the correct movies. I'm still not on the wavelength. I haven't figured it all out exactly, right? But, but these families, they have so many inside jokes and um, experiences wrapped up with these stories that they can just reference one line or an event and to an outsider it would seem almost meaningless but to another member of their family they're communicating just a host of feelings emotions and memories and 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 hopes and dreams that, that's sort of how the the historical references here the prophetic uh, messages, some that, you know, we might not have even noticed it, but, but all these things here, even, you know, little things like saying verse 29, that they, they took Jesus down from a tree, right? Uh, to you, that might mean nothing, but of course, to them, it would scream, Deuteronomy 21, 23, man hung on a tree is cursed by God. So there's, there's these messages encoded in, in here. This is their story. This is what they live and breathe. 
And, and these people, they're not just Jews. They are Jews in exile. They're a minority far away from the promised land, far away from the holy city. Their city was a Roman colony. They've got a Roman garrison there, uh, foreign soldiers. They're surrounded by paganism, by secular power. Every week they gather. They've got this precious gathering where they remind each other about the law, about the first uh, five books of the Old Testament. They, they remind themselves of their history, right? Their heroes, Moses, the judges, David. These are the people they think about. The, the, the king, David, who brought Israel into the golden age, right? These, these people are, they're Batman and they're Superman. They've grown up with, except they're real. And, and they read from the prophets and, and they're, they're reminded of the promises, right? That the Lord will restore his people, that a final hero will come. This Messiah, the son of David, he's going to establish the throne of David's king forever. They, they believe this. They're looking for it. They're waiting for it. He's going to bring them back to their homeland. They believe this king will come and God will be to him a father and he will be to God a son. That's what God had promised King David in 2 Samuel 7, 14. And so in verse 33 here, Paul quotes from Psalm 2, to link this promise to David with this Jesus that he's speaking of, this Jesus who died and rose again. And uh, verse 31, there are lots of witnesses to all of this wandering around right now, he mentions. And his, his suffering and his resurrection, what are they? Well, they are a fulfillment of, again, all these, these memories and these verses that these people know by heart. Some of them have memorized all of them. And we see here he quotes from uh, Psalm 16. That's the third quotation here where the Lord said he would not let his Holy One see corruption. Right? And we know that's, that's Jesus because verse 36, that could not have been referring to David. Right? David, he died. His body rotted. He served his purpose. But we know the guy it refers to and you can know him too, because through his resurrection from the dead, verse 34, God says, I will give you, and that's a, a plural you there in that uh, second quotation in verse 34. You can't see that in English, but it's plural. The resurrection of this son confirms that God gives all of you the holy and sure blessings of David, an everlasting covenant. The, the second quote, that's from Isaiah 55, verse 3. In that, the context of that quote, the Lord prophesies that he will give water to those who are thirsty. He will give wine and milk and bread and rich food to those who have no money. He will give life to his people. These are the sure blessings of David. Now, bought for, paid for, and confirmed by the suffering and the exaltation to glory of the Holy One who did not see corruption. Is this not a message of salvation? And again, you have to feel the deep impact of this on people who've been yearning for the fulfillment of all these promises, all these prophecies. They've been singing about them. They've been dreaming about them for centuries. 
and, and they're not even fully understanding how they all work. But see, Paul, he's lining them all up for them. He's showing them how their history was always leading them here. God's grace was always at work all along, even in those sad years of exile. Don't you see God's grace? He chose us. He put up with us. Working out a plan of salvation that brings hope and encouragement to all who will listen. Friends, this is a word of encouragement for you. Don't you need a word of salvation? Are you among those who fear God and would like to get in on the holy and sure blessings of David? Let's turn to my final point, God's freeing offer. God's freeing offer. The kingdom of God that Christ is raised up as the king, as the savior of. That is a kingdom of pure light. A kingdom of holiness. This means that we have all disqualified ourselves for entering this kingdom because none of us can claim on our own that we have no darkness within ourselves. The darkness is rebellion against God. It manifests itself in all sorts of ways. We're born with it. The Bible calls it sin. But Paul stands up with an encouraging word, and he says, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is the offer, you see. Forgiveness of sins. Now, people don't like these words, sin, forgiveness. They remind them that they are guilty and no one likes the feeling of guilt. So be freed from that feeling. But there's only one way. Continuing in verse 39, and by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law, that's what makes you feel guilt. You don't even have to believe in God or his law to feel the guilt because he made you and he wrote his law on your heart. You won't be able to escape it. Atheists cannot escape it. None of the religions can escape this. None of the religions of the world that we see, they all operate within some sort of system of rules that you must keep in order to be free, but you cannot keep the law. You can't do it. You must be freed from the condemnation of the law. And only Jesus perfectly kept the law. So only he can free you from the long finger of condemnation. Notice it says, verse 38, through this man, in verse 39, by him, everyone, the offer is open to all, everyone who believes. That is the narrow gate to God's freeing offer, belief. Some will want to hear Paul again, but others will grow jealous. And so Paul says, beware, in verse 40, 
Beware. And he goes on to explain with a quotation from Habakkuk 1.5. This message of salvation, this is an astounding thing. It's so astounding. Many will not believe. Even if they're told it straight to their face, right to their face, this message that the, the hero you need to save you from discouragement did it by dying on a cross and rising from the dead is so astounding that many will hear it and simply not believe. So please do not scoff at this message of, of a cross in an empty tomb. Do not be astounded and perish. Do not... Do not fail to believe in the work of Jesus that he does for you. Be astounded and believe and be encouraged. The God of all the universe, who is beyond comprehension, is not beyond your knowledge. Because he shows himself to you today. He shows himself as gracious, choosing those who could do nothing to be chosen, working on them, growing them, putting up with them, blessing them with a Savior, the one who brings them the sure and holy blessings of David, the one who did not see corruption and thus has the power to forgive sins and to free you from all that following the law could never free you from. This is an encouraging message. This is the apostolic message given to Christ's church to proclaim to all the nations. We start by encouraging each other with it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would encourage us this day with your words given to us through your word, through the work of your spirit and your servant Paul many years ago, preaching an encouraging message to these Jews in a, a place far from us, Lord, and yet still, Lord, we can be encouraged as we Father, hear of this message of salvation accomplished by Jesus through his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Lord, he confirms to us that these blessings are real and eternal. With his eternal life, he proves that your covenant with your people is eternal, it cannot be broken. And we, Lord, are deeply encouraged to know that you offer us forgiveness of sins and freedom from all which we could not be freed from by the law. We're so tempted to live by the law, but you, O oh Lord, humble us by offering us grace. We thank you for this. We see your glory and your grace, and we are grateful. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing our final hymn together. I don't remember it, but it'll be up on the board. So there it is, 701, redeemed how I love to proclaim it.